0: Ego in check, me. <laughs> yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date.
1: Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to The Stages Podcast. It's great to have your company. Catherine Brisbane described John Sinchuk as a theatre polymath. He's a NIDA graduate with a multi-award winning career that spans 40 years. He's work seen nationally and internationally in commissions for opera, dance and drama. John has guided next generations of creative artists in tertiary theatre schools. He has chaired and sat on the boards of numerous arts organisations, designed and directed a plethora of theatre productions, and penned the books and librettos for premier Australian musicals. A prolific writer, he is also working on several publications that chronicle our rich arts heritage. Including a three part series of tomes detailing the evolution and dominance of Sydney's Griffin Theatre Company. John can certainly be described as a theatrical animal, and it's a treat to explore his vast experiences in this episode of the Stages podcast. Good morning, John Senshook. Good to speak with you, Peter. Thanks for uh, for joining the uh, the podcast of characters on on stages.
0: Well, it's astonishing to know that you've done over three hundred now. It's pretty impressive, I think, and a, and a great sort of um, resource, theatrical resource. You're a champion.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you so much. Um, you're a champion too. Your biography describes you as a theatre polymath. Now, um, I have no doubt that that's a, a very accurate description, having a look at your, your uh, resume. What is it that that fascinates you about the theatre and keeps you engaged and wanting to explore it?
0: Um, look, firstly, Catherine Brisbane first described me as a theatre polymath, <laughs> and I've kept it ever since. <laughs> but, look, I, uh, I guess... Um, look, I came from a background um, as the son of a of a Ukrainian Bush publican. And uh, up until I was 16, I, I didn't know anything about the theatre at all um, and hadn't read a play. And it was only when I was 16, I went away to boarding school, that I sort of fell into the orbit of a rather extraordinary Marist brother at St Joseph's College, brother Michael Norton. And in one of those just extraordinary epiphanies, um, he introduced me to literature, he took me to the opera, he took me to the theatre, and I had a, an opportunity to just speak openly and candidly about my experiences of those. I mean, the first theatre he took me to, were, he must have had a penchant for Robin Nevin, because in the spate of two years I saw, you know, Robin playing Blanche Dubois, Cleopatra in *Season at Sarsaparilla. And it, it was um, a fantastic sort of introduction. um And it also helped a little bit that um, that Michael Norton was um, a fellow at Cambridge and knew E.M. Forster and all that wonderful crowd of early literary giants. And the ability to actually talk to him about those novels too in such an intimate way. I just got hooked on the theatre then. Um and, it, and and it's never waned ever since. I still get a tingle when the house lights go down and the curtain's about to go up on any theatre production that I see.
1: Yes, I heard it described as once as a beautiful lie, and I, I quote that often. <laughs> it's where else can you go and be lied to and absolutely be taken in and um, invest in it?
0: Well, in, the theat- in, in that context too, what amazed me about going to the theatre... And, and still does, is how we all, as a cohort of people, make the choice to pay a lot of money to sit in the dark with strangers in order for that lie to take place. It's That's a fantastic phenomenon. And, and and you only experience it in the theatre. Maybe you experience it in some way in a big sporting event as well. But it's that relationship that um, really sort of fascinated me. And when you, in Australia, saw some fantastic actors, like I was seeing at that time in the late 70s, early 80s, when the Sydney Theatre Company was just sort of like starting to bloom and Richard Werrett was producing those spectacularly, um, you know, uh, uh, visually oriented productions and big plays with a huge casts. Um, there was something exciting about uh, the early part of my career that sort of led me through, really.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's a communal experience, isn't it? And uh, in the same way that, you know, football can be likened to a religion, I think very much so. The theatre can, you know, th- those theatres are our temples and the actors are the gods that we, uh, we come to worship.
0: And the other thing I'm I'm very conscious of now as I sort of like devote my sort of time to theatre history is that so many productions only exist in the memory of audiences. So little of how great productions exist outside one or two reviews. And it's um, unlike in the States or in the West End, where great performers and great productions sort of like live on in the ether of, of the theatrical environment, we've, we've tended to sort of neglect our great productions and our great role players, the great actors. And um, they tend to slip into obscurity. And even noticing that Carol Ray has just um, passed um, to the, the number of people now who can't remember who she was or what she did, even though she was on the stage in the West End at 16 and had a career for, you know, 12 years on, on the West End stage as a dancer, that she created um fantastic... Well, the first great satiric television show, Mavis Bramston in Australia, and had a great career here as a producer. I mean, the memory of those people remains obviously in her friends and colleagues, and uh, but in fact, the majority of it lies in the devotees of the theatre. The fact that she had to wait until she was ninety-nine to be recognised in the Order of Australia was uh, is sort of like a little too much too soon, um, as Sheila Florence once said, getting her first logie. Um, but it's uh, it's an extraordinary uh, thing about how our theatre heritage is passed down. And and in some ways, it's pretty sad that um, young people don't have the benefit of that knowledge. And that's what I'm trying to fix in my own sort of small way by by writing histories now that, that give backstage stories, as well as the onstage public airing of our productions.
1: Yeah, I think that ephemeral nature of of theatre certainly makes it the, the experience which is like no other. Um, you talk about Carol Ray, and and I hear people talk so often of that magic production of Noises Off, which I didn't see, but I, I wish I had with that extraordinary cast of her and Barry Creighton and Stuart Wagstaff and and, and also um, Travelling North, David Williamson's Travelling North, in, in I believe that she was absolutely wonderful.
0: Well, she was, but uh, I, I was at the dress rehearsal of that Noises Off, and um, my old law school pal, Tim McKenzie, was sort of like making one of his first stage appearances. Um, he, like many of us, uh, started out in the law and gave it up for the theatre. But it was an hilarious afternoon. It was a matinee sort of like preview of Noises Off, and it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And I remember it absolutely. It... Um, yeah, but again, it uh, it, it um the, the the magic of those sorts of days. Look at that lineup of people that was in that production.
1: Uh, Frank Wilson also, which who she played opposite in, in Traveling North. Oh,
0: in Traveling North. In fact, she did two productions of Traveling North because Arnie Nemi directed her in another production for Hunter Valley Theatre Company a couple of years later. So she got to know the role. But sadly, um, she missed out on getting the film role which went to the equally fabulous Julia Blake.
1: Yeah, 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 indeed. With
0: Leo
1: McKern. yeah. Yeah, yeah, great film, great play. Um, yeah. We're recording this conversation on the day I released my 300th episode of mm-hmm. the Stages podcast, and I've chosen a focus on Gloria Dawn. And again, that came about uh, to honour, you know, the, those those stars who are part of our heritage. I never got to see her perform, but you hear such wonderful stories of her in a hard God. And um, Mother Courage at the MTC, and Gypsy, of course, which was her last great success. So I, I think it's important that we um, we somehow catalogue those performances and, and retain them as a reference.
0: And and we and the theatre is about reinvention. Why do we love Shakespeare still? Is that each generation chooses to reinvest in the great work in the canon. And all we've got to get used to in Australia, I think, is reinvesting in our great theatre stars. You know, they are the foundation. I love that wonderful New Zealand, the Maori concept of, uh, you know, we we look at history as sort of in linear ways, but the Maori history looks at foundation, layer upon layer. Our our, our theatrical tradition is based on what came before. Um, We judge... You know, we'll judge Richard Roxburgh's Prospero later on the year on John Belts because it what came before. Um, so these sorts of things, I think, become really important. And I suppose the one small worry I have is that the the younger people who are now in charge of our major companies have come into their roles in a very in, in, as youths. Uh, uh, and not necessarily unintelligent or or lacking acumen, but without sufficient experience of the theatre, with a the knowledge of what these foundations are. Um, and so you're absolutely right. Gloria Dawn was a great, great star, and she needs to be remembered. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm delving around in that area at the moment too, Peter, because I, I did get a commission too to write a biography of, of one of my mentors, uh, Robin Lovejoy, the great director of The Old Tote.
1: Yep, yep.
0: So that that whole 60s and 70s uh, was a really fascinating time in Australia, uh, an Australian theatre tradition, uh, with, um, with both Melbourne Theatre Company and The Old Tote.
1: I think my historical wonder. I tend to read a lot of biographies um, because you're writing those biographies. Do you get enjoyment from reading the, the, them, or where do you go to to uh, escape with your well, reading?
0: I, well, in fact, I usually—that's um, what I do. I mean, like working in the theatre, you know. And and um, I noticed. You, I mean, you've 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 interviewed a lot of a lot of uh, my theatrical mates. Designers, but um, you recognise that what we do uh, is is not a job. It's it's you know part of the lifestyle, and part of what I do now. Even though I don't actually actively work in the theatre, I don't design. I do occasionally direct shows, but um, what I'm doing now, I just find is part and parcel of my life. I read I read biographies, I read history of the theatre, and I'm most of the time researching. And every time I'm researching a project. Um, it just sort of like unravels another fascinating tidbit that I've just got to chase up at some stage. I'm working on a a research project at the moment that is a a sort of a a visual reconstruction of the... um, an online reconstruction. The terminology, the technology escapes me. I can't do it. I've got an amanuensis who's building this stage for me in some some fabulous... um, some fabulous program, but what it is is we're trying to reconstruct the old Victoria Theatre in Newcastle. was built in 1891 um, and placing within it the first production, which was a wonderful uh, burlesque called Evangeline by E. Rice that was a huge hit in America in the 1870s, 1880s. But just researching that project and visualising that meant that that the research project took me into discovering um, a a whole range of facts about the producers, the great McMahon brothers, that there's very little written about. So these sorts of things excite me. When I come across an unknown and start delving into all that, I start to get excited again. And um, it means it just starts to fill in some gaps in, in um, my knowledge, but also gaps in in the lineage of the history.
1: I, I don't want to sound like an old man, but, but how do we get the young performers and the young creatives to get excited and and be interested in in their history? I mean, a part of it is a natural curiosity but but I remember when I was a kid, you know you'd get the latest cast recording, you'd read every ensemble member, I'd watch the credits of every film. <laughs> Kids today have YouTube, they have access to so much material. But but for well, some it, reason, you face a class and they don't know what you're talking about sometimes.
0: Well, we're, we're cast in the same mould, but that's our generation too, Peter. And we, we had an ability to, you know, there were very few platforms for us to actually be excited about. It was either mm. the, the stage or it was television or it was film. Yeah. But um, and our attention spans were much greater in those days. But now, of course, you know, we have with Instagram and and um, all the other online platforms, we can get instantaneous gratification of any sort that we want. You know, i I was always I'm, I'm a bit fascinated at the moment at the, the, at the swing of the pendulum. You know, literary, literary managers and artistic directors spend their time trying to discern what their audience is and to put together a season that that will appeal to as many of their, in Sydney Theatre Company's case, you know, 22,000 subscribers as possible. You know, it's a game of of chance and picking. The huge difference now with online product is that you create the product and you invite the people to come join you. And the people that come join you might number in the millions now. So there's been a complete reversal as to what determines popularity in terms of entertainment. That's fascinating. And that's probably why um, the fascinations that we oldies, Peter, have, um, is is, um, there's a certain tinge of nostalgia about that. But it's no less important, I feel. We've got to try and educate people to actually regard history um, as being fundamentally crucial to how we actually continue the process of the theatre, especially in Australia.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're t- two-thirds through a wonderful history of the Griffin Theatre Company through um, <laughs> Griffin Rising and, and Griffin Redux at the moment, which are great reads, which, which document a really <laughs> important chapter in Australian theatre history. And it would seem to me that, you know, it would be paramount for, for any creative or performer who is going to work on that stage at the Stables Theatre to, to um, understand who and what has gone before.
0: Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, look, I've, I've, I originally um, began that project um, uh, as a sort of gift to my dear friend Penny Cook um, just before she died. And uh, and and we were sort of like lamenting the fact um, she was one of the founders of the Griffin Theatre Company and we were lamenting the fact that in 2019 Griffin weren't actually celebrating the 40th anniversary. And... Um, and I, I, I began that project as, in, as sort of like a promise to her, but basically just to, to set the record straight about when the company was formed, why it was formed and what its development was over that extraordinary first decade. And it was, uh, and it was then Chris Puplik who, who um, came to me. He was a, a chair of the company in the 90s and said, look, I, I'll guarantee you the publication of this if you write the rest of the 40-year history because he was somebody um, who thought that knowing the backstory of a theatre company, knowing the struggles, knowing that it's not only about artistic decisions, but about government de- go- governance decisions. Um, it's about decisions about how you run the bar <laughs> and, and how the structure of the organisation is. It was, it, it basically, that's what's driven me to actually write this full history, and by the time it it finishes um, with the third book. Um, this will be a comp the, the only comprehensive history of a theater company over 40 years in the country. So it, it sort of like plots an independent movement that 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 the major arc of which then suggests moving into a more corporate um, government, governance-driven entity as funding comes about. So there are some big lessons to be learned from the Griffin story so that and I suspect um, there will be a lot more independent companies that start to emerge over the next couple of years coming out of COVID but I'm hoping that this history will give some some salutary lessons about you know you don't have to reinvent the wheel that Griffin has probably gone through many of the problems that these people these younger people are facing now with trying to establish Independent companies or alternative companies, and the oh, good luck to them! But um, it's a, certainly a, a most remarkable organisation, and made more, made much more um, fascinating too by the fact that they they got the angel that was Rodney Seaborn, Dr. Rodney Seaborn, to actually buy the venue. That in itself, I think, has saved that company um, over that 40-year. 40 year um, existence
1: i imagine there's lots of companies who would like their history written but um it's fighting someone yeah. to write it um you know uh, john sumner's recollections at play um mm. it describes the the union theater becoming the melbourne theater company but but then it stops at the end of his um his reign um yes and well, the ensemble the is a great group- story too isn't it to be written
0: well, I think so. Um, one of the other things that um, Chris Puplick has just asked me to do is to, once I complete the, the the Griffin book, is to actually then start on a history of the Australian Theatre for Young People, which is about to celebrate its 60th anniversary. Um, I, I, and I, I'm really looking forward to that. As somebody who worked for them in my early career, it um, and that's produced such an extraordinary array of, international starts um i'm, I'm uh, it's a project that i'm really looking forward to
1: how long does it take you to um <laughs> go from that first commission or suggestion to publication it's uh must be years of research and uh, and writing. Um,
0: look you if you work on these things full-time um the i think the the first book uh took me about the first griffin book took me about 12 12 months from um, beginning the process because I wanted it to occur within, within that period, within that um, um anniversary period. The second one took about a little less, maybe eight months. But the the Carol Ray's biography, I started interviewing her last September. So it's and and the first draft of that was com- completed um, September, October, November, maybe eight months later. So yeah, about earlier on nine months.
1: Right. Let's go back to your youth. and we have a a Maris brother who ignites this passion for for theatre and and live performance within you. Are you starting to think that's the industry that I want to work in, or did you have other career aspirations, or perhaps your your parents were steering you in a particular way?
0: Well, look, um, my father died when I was young. Um, they were um, Ukrainian refugees that that um, came here in in 1948, and typical of that um, of that time, they were pushed out to the bush uh, to earn a keep. Mum hated the sound of living on a farm, <laughs> and so um, so they ended up uh, working in a hotel. Dad is a backyardsman, and mum. Uh, making beds and doing kitchen work and eventually having a sort of a work ethic that my father obviously had he he bought into the business but he died when i was 10 and mum took over the took over the the hotel business and all during my my sort of like primary early secondary school years i my life was um was actually coming home from school, doing my homework, having dinner, and then going and pulling beers until 10 o'clock. That was my life. Um, and um, it was partly I was the only son. I was looking after mum and looking after the business in 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 the ways that I could. And as fantastic as that was as a lifestyle, um, when I got to 16, I said to mum, look, I can't, I've, I've got to get away. You know, I just felt as though I needed to. To change my environment, so fortunately, one of my dad's one of my dad's old partners um, was an an ex Joey's boy, and so he managed to get me into St Joseph's College in Hunters Hill. So I went for the last two years, and this is where I met the great Michael Norton. But when I finished high school, um, I felt as though I owed my mother um, something for. Well, basically, you know, she worked for me and and I felt as though I needed to, to to repay her. So I enrolled to do law at Sydney University and that's where I thought my career was going to go. Um, so uh, I had a fantastic sort of um, first year at law and I had a wonderful... um a wonderful... Uh, I, I, the criminal law appealed to me and I had a wonderful criminal law lecturer called Greg Woods, who's since become a judge. But um, he advised me. He was a great mate of um, John Gaydon's and um, and uh, uh, who, who also, I think, began in the law, as so many people, so many actors did, like John Howard, all starting in the law. But Greg Woods uh, said, look, if you want to be an actor, sorry, if you want to be a lawyer, a barrister, you need acting training. So I thought, okay, so I went and did some classes with Hayes Gordon and Zeke Nester over at the Ensemble Theatre, So, which was a, a total revelation doing all this stuff, um, learning, you know, the method that you know, Stanislavski filtered through, you know, the American um, Stella Adler School and so on. But... Um, and eventually I started uh, to take time off from university to do some acting gigs. You know the pub theater was very big in those days. so I started to do some pub theater and I got a couple of roles in in some TV series. I remember doing the pilot of a of a of a detective show that that uh, that starred John Stanton at one early stage. and John Crummell was the villain in it, I remember. But, but I soon then realised that that this new world of the theatre, as me as an actor, was actually much more exciting and much more interesting and provocative than and I was reading more, I was reading plays, and I found the whole process of interpreting text a really fascinating endeavour. And so I eventually transferred to arts law and did some did some arts subjects. But that didn't work. So after this, at the end of the second year, I just withdrew. Um, and I think Greg Woods was probably pleased that I did <laughs> um, after he marked some of my papers, but um, my heart wasn't really in it. But, but it didn't take me long then to realise that I wasn't a good enough actor. I needed to have more specific training. So I applied for NIDA. And because I was unemployed, I applied for every course. I applied for the acting course, the design course, the stage management course. And um, interestingly enough, they—they they, I got through to a, a, a late afternoon audition at night, which apparently is very good. But eventually the word came back that I wasn't quite good enough. And, um, in fact, I was rejected from all the courses until... Uh, January of 1983, I got a uh, sorry 1981. I got a telegram from Elizabeth Butcher, which read, "Dear Michael, obviously intended for Michael Scott Mitchell. Dear Michael, <laughs> we now have a place for you at NIDA in the design course. Will you accept?" And as I discovered later, Michael got my telegram because he too was rejected in the first round of that NIDA intake for 1981. And so it was in a strange sort of piece of serendipity that I entered into the theatre through design at the National Institute of Dramatic Art, and it felt very comfortable. I'd done very little visual arts in my life prior to that, but somehow I had a facility, and, um, and that was a fantastic group to spend time with Michael, who had just come from um, architecture at Sydney University. Robert Kemp was in my year. Um, Judith Hoddenot and Derek Cox. And the five of us, um, well, in fact, there was more that started out. One of of our other early graduates who dropped out was Deborah Thomas. Deborah, who, who was an international model, was looking for a new career. And she came to NIDA, and again she couldn't cope with with uh, all that, uh, with her jet-setting career prior. But so uh, she eventually became the editor of Cleo, and of the Australian Women's Weekly. Um, and it's great to 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 stay in contact with her. But that clutch of of Robert and Judith and Derek and Michael and myself um, had a pretty good run. I think we were a year that continued to get work throughout. And Michael, who's just um, Become the president of the Australian Designers Guild is probably the generation's great designer, great theatre uh, stage designer.
1: Uh, you mentioned earlier that that Robin Lovejoy was a mentor of yours. Uh, I imagine he was on the the faculty at NIDA at the time.
0: Well, one of the the, the reason why Michael and I eventually got um, a position was that Robin came in to replace Alan Lee's. Who was um, who? Who had auditioned Michael and I, um, and and we were both um, rejected. And I've become a great friend of uh, Alan Lee's now, so there's no no recriminations there. Um, but um, when Robin came in, he saw he he saw he, he reviewed the list, and it was Robin who then offered um, offered both Michael and I uh, reprieves and gave us positions, and he was. He was there for um, for our for uh, for our tenure at NIDA. And he he was uh, he saw in me, I have to say, not a designer, but a director. And um and he he was a he was provocative, Robert, a fantastic, um, a fantastic and brilliant man. He himself a designer director, um, had made his career as as a polymath. And, uh, but he saw me as a director and uh, Michael, he knew, he could tell straight away what um, uh, what a genius Michael would become and was. And he pitched Michael to people like uh, Jim Sharman, knowing that that's where Michael would get his provocations and uh, uh, in, in the secondments. But in fact, Robert Robin took me under his wing and he took me to Melbourne. And uh, for my uh, secondment, I was an assistant director on his revival of, um, oh, sorry, it was in, pre- in fact the premiere of his production of Idomeneo um, with Nance Grant in Melbourne. And um, John Truscott was the designer. And uh, I also got to work on um, a production of Carmen. A new production of Carmen down there. With this was with the old Victorian State Opera, but that in itself, I thought, was was an insightful thing on Robin's behalf, because he knew at some stage that I would I would be more interested in pursuing those sorts of um, of approaches to the theatre as opposed to a designer. Um, and I'm grateful to him for that. He gave me a tremendous insight, and so. Um, I'm very pleased to be sort of like giving him something back with this book as well.
1: Was it problematic going into that design course without any real visual arts experience or or skill?
0: Um, well, look, the, the course actually, you know, the course in those days, well, let's be frank, the, the design course and the, the technical production course back in those days was basically the support structure for the acting course, you know, to provide the productions for the actors. I mean, that's we all knew it at the time. And, you know, we were housed in in shocking conditions back though back then, <laughs> uh, makeshift sort of studios. But, but what, it, what it did give us, um, what it lacked in sort of um, those sorts of teaching processes of skills, which we got basic tech drafting and model making and all those sorts of things, but the biggest thing I got out of it was provocation and discussion, you know, that the, the Robin introduced us to alternate ideas and, and we became self-reliant. So the art and the craft of design was something you could actually pick up and learn, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't um, uh, you know, nuclear science. Um, but what was important was that you approached a text from a visual point of view. And and Robin was um, brilliant at actually giving us that or introducing us, at least, to that skill. And some of us uh, took it, um, like Michael, just took it, the ball, and ran with it. I was a bit too cerebral. Um, And even though I did have a fantastic career as a a designer, and I'm very pleased to have had it, I didn't feel quite at home in that. I mean, I one of my one of I was so um, impressed by a designer called Jenny Tate, and um, Jenny was a brilliant designer and and a film designer as well. But she would, you know, when you saw her work in a wardrobe and build a costume, and you know, she would get ecstatic over fabrics and textures and you know it it was a it was a process for her that was sort of like almost religious your word earlier that process i could never feel that you know i was always interested in the dramaturgy in in what the words meant in the making meaning of the text that's where i felt most comfortable and of course that transferred to when i started working um when i i, I had a fortunate um opportunity to go down and and work in the tertiary system. Barry Cunningham, the composer, was um, setting up a faculty of creative arts at the University of Wollongong in 1988, 89. And he invited me to come on board to set up the design course and uh, the dramaturgy course, and and, which I did, and it was fantastic, 18 years I had at that institution, concurrently with working in the theatre. But what that introduced me to was I did a lot of work with the uh, regional company Theatre South in those days. And it's, it's through Des Davis, who was then the artistic director, who was also an academic. Um, it was through him that I, I, I was on my training wheels as a director. So I got to do um, a, a lot of the great classics. I had a fantastic penchant for Shakespeare. Um and so, you know, I directed Hamlet and Twelfth Night and a whole range of other projects, Jeff Kevin in Christian Brothers. So I was doing a lot of that work. I remember doing an early production of um after dinner. Um uh, but um I it, it was something that I enjoyed and I often designed my own productions. So it was a it was a really fantastic um, and very creative period I had during the during the '90s, from that point of view, I was very busy.
1: You, you were effect, effective at collaborating with yourself.
0: <laughs> uh, well, the, 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 what it meant was uh, the great thing that I felt about designing shows myself, especially in later years when I started directing musicals, was that you, you, as a designer, you have a feel as though you've got to, you've got to actually. Um, provide for the director. You've, you know, every scene needs to, you know, you need to give the director something. But when I started to direct shows that I designed, I realised that, in fact, that was an error, that, in fact, some some parts of a production you've got to just leave to the mise-en-scene, you've got to leave it to the director to solve the problem. You know, de- designing for the theatre is not um, what Richard Weiris once said about designing for the theatre, he said, you don't have to have all the answers, but you have to be answerable to the choices that you make. And and ultimately, in any production, the collaboration, and I had this with Wayne Harrison, too, um, when we did a lot of shows together at Sydney Theatre Company, that some things that I just had to say, it's up to you. Whereas other things he would say, well, look, I need these last 10 minutes, I need to hand them over to you, which is what we did in Amy's view. And and I love that sort of like approach to the theatre.
1: You you um, collaborated, but, I think, over twenty productions at at STC, um, and one of them was the premiere of uh, Australian premiere of Into the Woods. Oh yes. Now, now had the Broadway production been televised uh, at that stage? I mean, uh, did audiences? know? No, so they didn't know what that set design was like. I was going to say, what was it like, sort of coming up with something, which was not the Broadway franchise? You know, you were well, able to do. No, I mean there, there are two
0: things. There were two things about doing a, a. I mean, I with Wayne, we did a lot of. Um, apart from you know premieres of David Williamson's work, which we did a we did a couple of. Um, most of the time, our collaborations were on shows that had originated on Broadway or the West End. You know, Six Degrees of Separation or, or Shadowlands, or we, you know, our first collaboration was on uh, The Normal Heart. Um, Larry Kramer's fantastic play. But uh, when it came to the Into the Woods, what makes musicals so difficult, uh, and especially with something like Sondheim, um, our first collaboration, Wayne and I, was on uh, the revival of Little Night Music. And um, the thing to realise with something like a musical is that uh, Sondheim wrote the the end of the first act, the finale to the first act, once they were in the theatre, and and that fabulous original design for, for A Little Night Music on Broadway had all these wonderful screens that would come across and change the set quickly. Well, when you actually begin a new production, and you don't have the value of that original design you've got to create that sort of and fit in with the music and fit in with the action it was also easy for sometimes sitting there because he could work it around the original production when we came to um when we came to a little uh, to into the woods a couple of things uh complicated the matter um one was that um Uh, Wayne was privy to um, and wanted to include uh, a couple of extra songs for the witch. And um, also he had um, a concept uh, for the production that was based on him meeting um, and communicating with Sondheim. And Sondheim at, at some point had mentioned to him that he sort of wrote into the woods as a cathartic experience um, for all his friends uh, dying of AIDS at the time. And, and, and there was a, a notion um, that the giant um, was AIDS, you know, indiscriminately stamping across the country. Um, and, and, and as intellectual as all that is, I suppose, is one thing. But Wayne wanted to frame uh, the work in a certain way that suggested that. And so we opened that production of Into the Woods in Stephen Sondheim's New York apartment, sitting um, in front of his white piano. And uh, as the overture began, the piano opened and all the characters stepped out of the piano. And and I created a set that turned, as as Geraldine quite, quite rightly says in her biography, her memoir, was sort of like, they used to call it the mix master. Um, we'd never get away with it today with occupational health and safety, but it was a it was basically a, a donut revolve on an angle with a central lift. And it it when it worked, it was sensational. Um we just got controversial because it took us a little while to get it right. And we had to cancel previews and and then the lift, and then the revolve of the opera house that we relied on, you know, broke down and we had to get stuff from from, apart from Germany, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, I was very proud of the work, even though it was one of the most, you know, stressful times, and And it was interesting just to read Geraldine's, uh, you know, response to the work from an actor's point of view because a lot of people were stressed by the whole thing, by the fact that STC couldn't afford to get the revolve into the rehearsal room and then we had a short protracted, we had a protracted time in the theatre and so on. So it tested everybody. But Wayne had a steel rod up his back and and we got through that production. It was hugely successful and I was very sorry that they just didn't, um, there was a lot of talk that it would tour. But the logistics, I think, just defeated it at the end of the
1: day. A show that did tour was uh, Williamson's Dead White Males. I, I think that went yeah. on a big national tour. What are the considerations in designing a show that's going to tour and and be at home in many many different theatres?
0: Yeah, well, one of the advantages, um, one of the advantages with a with a production like Dead White Males is that we basically knew what the smallest theatre was going to be. The tours. A sort of like set so far in advance, so that you know exactly. So when you come to design something like that, it becomes a logistical process of doing the overlays. And in that particular case, um, in that particular case, what was fascinating was that that, um, I'd already virtually designed the set because a, a couple of years earlier, Wayne and the most wonderful, the you know probably my second great mentor, Philip Parsons, Dr. Philip Parsons. Of currency press fame, um, but we had um, we worked on a series of Elizabethan um, projects, research projects. Philip was the uh, was the person that built the um, had built the uh, replica New Fortune Theatre, the University of Western Australia, and his great interest was. Um, the dramaturgy, uh, excavation dramaturgy. What could you learn about Shakespeare by doing Shakespeare under Elizabethan working conditions, which he did um, on that space? And when, when he, and during the early '90s, we started a series of projects where we did Shakespeare under Elizabethan working conditions. Myself, Wayne, and um, and and Philip. And we started, they'd started a little earlier with productions of of, um, Marlowe's Faust and Hamlet. I think Hugo Weaving was played Gertrude. Um, And then I came along and we started to uh, codify it a little with the design, and and we did it outdoors. Um, We did a production of Othello with uh, David Downer and John Howard playing Iago, sensational and um, Nicodidi as uh, Cassio, and then eventually that grew and we did productions of um, um, Henry IV, part one, King Lear with Ron Hadrick, and then we did Antony and Cleopatra with with John Stanton and Sandy Gore. But then Wayne wanted to put that process of what we'd learned about acting and what we'd learned about staging, he wanted to put it into the drama theatre. So we did a production of Much Ado About Nothing, John Howard and Pamela Ray playing Beatrice and Benedict. And and, um, it wasn't a match made in heaven, but um, it was an interesting process of how we converted that whole idea into a proscenium arch venue using the same room in the drama theatre. I designed this raked stage for that production, and we used a series of drapes and so on. But a couple of years later, when Wayne actually got the first draft of Dead White Males, which features a character of Shakespeare, Wayne said, why don't we just use the foundations of the much ado about nothing set? And the, and and all we'd learnt from that Shakespeare experimental season, why don't we just use that in order to look at this view of postmodernism that uh, David was pursuing at this point, and to actually and as Shakespeare was in the in the rather extraordinary opening scene, Shakespeare is approached by a lecturer and shot. Shakespeare is dead. You know the author is dead. You know the whole concept of postmodernism that David was playing with at that stage, and we played that set. Uh, we we used that uh, much ado about nothing set, regurgitated it to uh, to David's production, and David, to his great credit, took on board the approach, and and it freed him up enormously because most of the time. There was, uh, the stage was unsituated. It didn't actually, there was no notion of where we were and we could jump back and forwards in time and include characters like, you know, the lead, the the old grandfather as King Lear or one of the sisters as, you know, Cleopatra Cleopatra and so on. Very exciting time. Um, And as it happened, um, Dave, uh, that play for some reason hit the zeitgeist. And um, it toured nationally, but it had, um, I think, two or three return seasons in Sydney with multiple casts. And at the time was probably one of the biggest, you know, hits box office wise that Sydney Theatre Company had had. And um, and it's it's an extraordinary story to sort of like tell.
1: Well, you talked earlier about getting excited about discovering new things. I'm excited now. I mean, it's just hearing about the evolution of that play and how it came to be is uh, is terrific.
0: Yeah, well, I again, other parts of the play, because um, we played the production without furniture. One chair, I think we had, so sort of like a patriarchal chair. But um, playing David Williamson without furniture was an extraordinary thing. And I remember once um, John Howard's character, who played the lecturer, um, this postmodernist lecturer. Um, I remember he, uh, I, I was telling John a story once about um, at Wollongong University, how there was a, a tutor there that actually gave his tutorial sitting on the floor, everybody in a circle. And I think without naming names, he was passing around a flag. Again. Um, as well, but that's how in those days that's what you could do at the at the theatre at, at the university. But anyway, John took to that with with relish, and and so our tutorials in that production had everybody all those kids sitting around the floor, uh, sitting around <laughs> on the floor taking taking um, taking their tutorial. But uh, that that was um, that was such a good cast that production too. I mean, John John in those days was was um, extraordinary, and um, I always regret that he sort of like gave up, you know, cl- his classical acting, and he had all the good reasons for doing that, but um, I can't get, you know, I've never been able to forget his Coriolanus with with said Phil Quast in Gail yes. Edwards' production, extraordinary.
1: Or indeed is, is John Proctor in The Crucible.
0: Well, again, that Richard's production was was just a revelation. Brian's design, Brian Thompson's design for that, too, um, just brought that play to life. I mean, that was a fantastic combination um, of director and designer.
1: John, let's talk about musical theatre. You've directed a lot of musicals. Um, you've also collaborated with Gail Edwards on the book and lyrics for the celebrated production of Eureka, um, mm. the libretto for the African Queen, and also in 2014, uh, a platform paper for Currency Press, The Time is Ripe for the Great Australian Musical. Have we achieved the Great Australian Musical?
0: Look, that... that. Um That platform paper was really responding to the fact that um, Eureka, uh, interestingly enough, um, was, I think, one of the first Australian musicals at that time to have an original score. The previous musicals, like the great one, The the Boy From Oz, which Gail also directed, was... was, um, Jukebox. It was a Jukebox musical. And and indeed, uh, that's tended to be, um, you know, uh, Melmore's dusty Priscilla,
1: Miller Rouge. were all
0: relying on all relying on um, on jukebox and uh, and other scores. And so, part of um, part of part of writing that um, platform paper as a provocation was to say, there's got to be a better way for us to actually encourage producers. To invest in totally original scores, totally original Australian stories. Didn't mean they have to be Australian stories. You know, that's an that, there's another great discussion to be had there about what makes a work Australian. But um but I, I just wanted to actually um pose that um we needed to break the cycle. And we needed to actually give composers an opportunity to actually start to learn on the job. One of the great things about Broadway is that there is there is a process of out of town tryouts. There's a process of of um, pre multiple previews. As I said before, Sondheim was writing major pieces, major songs. You know, Les Misérables. You know, on my own didn't get written until well into the into the preview season of Les Mis. In London, so so there was some. I thought there needed to be some sort of um, some sort of mechanism by which Australian librettists, Australian music theatre composers, could actually have an opportunity to learn and ply their trade. Um, the idea of orchestrating a work for the theatre. We have some great, great musicologists like um, Max Lambert and, um, and uh, uh, Michael Tyack, who who are the great elders of the music theatre in this country, who are just so adept at understanding what makes a work tick. Now, we just needed to let younger composers work with people like them and, and the great music theatre composers and directors like Gail Edwards and so on. Um, that's what the provocation was, and I suggested at that stage that there was a Perth solution, that we get people out of town. You know, most theatre companies, most most music theatre companies, uh, the best scenic workshop in Australia was then in Perth. So they would make them there and and it was quite logical and then they'd ship them out and so on. Anyway, that was a logistical part of this process. The bottom line was to actually say I thought that... that um, federal and state governments should be involved to encourage producers um, to actually start making work in Perth so that when these things were produced, um, they had local critics so you weren't decimated by the Sydney or Melbourne critics in your first production. And, um, And that there was a way of actually helping to finance new work, two or three shows a year, by actually encouraging international producers to be part this process. Ultimately, that's a very succinct way of of talking about what all that was. But that was in 2014, 2015. But I think Simon Phillips, since then, has actually, um, well, in a way, he sort of of did something that sort of worried me uh, when I was writing the paper. And that was something that still worries me a bit. And that's how commercial producers are sort of jumping into bed with subsidised companies. And um, but I think with Ladies in Black, um, I think it had its difficulties with Queensland Theatre Company. But there was a new and original work that Simon Simon was able to actually bring his experience to. And, And he now is probably the most formidable of our music theatre creators in the country and, and, you know, more strength to his arm. Um, and he's but, just you know,
1: opened um, Come Rain or Come Shine at the Melbourne Theatre Company that's too, right, with the same absolutely. team. Mm.
0: And and you, he needs to be encouraged and, and um, you know, th- people should throw money at Simon in order to actually continue to grow that. And the same thing with Global Creatures, you know. Um, with the success of Moulin Rouge now, I think that hopefully that they will start to invest in more local and with people like Eddie Perfect, um, you know, starting to create works on Broadway. We know we have the writers and the composers. It just needs to be channelled in a much more effective way. I thought that um, COVID put a sort of like a, a full stop, if you like, as it did to many things, and a chance to people to sit back and rethink a whole range of... Um, Opportunities for how we come out of it, but what was sort of disappointing in a way um, is that all the all the work that was being presented on Sydney stages post-COVID were all just imported play uh, musicals again. You know, the, the 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 sector wasn't kick-started by local um, parochial work. It was it was um, it was actually, uh, and some of these stories that were coming out in these musicals that were being produced had no relevance to us in a post-COVID world at all. Um, and I know they'll probably hangovers, but you know when you get the Australian Opera doing, you know, Phantom of the Opera again and and um, West Side Story, you sort of like scratch your head and say, well, you know, what what is this all about? Um, and all I ask is perhaps, uh, and as I was provoking in in um, in my platform paper, is that we start to really think about the music theatre as we think about our theatre, and that is we need uh, voices that tell stories about our culture and, um, and and I think one of the interesting things about that that process is I did a forum with that book and I had a couple of um, had a NIDA student and a Whopper student who did some Australian music theater songs and we had a, a discussion afterwards. and it turned out that one of the, 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 the Whopper student said that this is the first time she'd been at Whopper about five years earlier and she said this was the first time she's ever sung in her own accent. You know, and and I've, that's such an indictment of 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 our music theatre industry. But fortunately, with shows like Strictly Ballroom and and um, and a whole and and what Simon's doing collectively is giving us an opportunity to speak our own voice in our own idiom through the music theatre process, and that can only be a good thing for us
1: john um our time is running up and running out um you certainly have demonstrated that you are a polymath today there's so much more that we could have discussed um in your extraordinary career uh thank you for your generosity of time and story today
0: thank you peter it's been a pleasure
1: john's first two installments of the griffin theater story are now available griffin rising the first decade and griffin redux the ros horan years can be found at quality booksellers or you can try www.dramaturgyaustralia.com.au. I got my copy at the bookshop in Darlinghurst, and you could also do a search online. They are valuable chronicles of theatre in Australia and highly recommended. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website www.stagespodcast.com.au I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.